morning. Good to see you all this morning. A lot's been going on lately, and one of the things that might have slipped past you in this busy week, um, on the 31st of October, I know it was Halloween, and that's a national holiday, but there's was, was also a Reformation Day, right? It wasn't just any Reformation Day, was it? What was it? The 500th anniversary of Martin Luther uh, beginning the Protestant Re Reformation. Um, so yeah, so you probably have heard a little bit about that, and um, just want to kind of remind you of that. There's been a lot of uh, commemorations around the world. Um, it's, it's been a challenge, actually, for churches uh, to try to think through how to commemorate uh, the Reformation. There's, there's a lot of, of real good that has come from the Reformation, Reformation. but there's also been a lot of pain uh, that's come out of the Reformation, too. And so trying to be honest about that in commemorating it um, has been a challenge for some churches, um, but it's uh, been a lot of beautiful things that have happened uh, around the world. And... Um, it's not uh, inconsequential that uh, we've been looking at the Apostles' Creed for the last several months, uh, a creed that's used across uh, many Christian traditions and is a place uh, of unity, in fact, and we can, be, we can be grateful for that. And so if you haven't been with us uh, recently, uh, we've been sojourning in the Apostles' Creed, uh, taking it phrase by phrase, sometimes word by word, um, because there's, uh, we've been surprised um, how much there is to reflect on there, at least I have been, and, and a number of you have mentioned that as well. Um, so that if we uh, stand and, and say this creed um, on a communion Sunday, uh, or at a baptism, or at a funeral, uh, we have some sense of the richness of what we, it is we are confessing. And so last week, um, you may recall we did uh, suffered under Pontius Pilate. We also included the comma before there uh, because we're also dealing with punctuation. And if you weren't here last week, you'll have to ask somebody else because um, there's a lot in that comma. And so today um, we're just going to do was crucified. Okay, was crucified. Um, we have more than enough uh, in 30 minutes uh, to think through what is it that we're confessing uh, when, we, when we stand and confess um, that Jesus was crucified. And so at one level, there's the sort of obvious historical issue that Jesus himself was crucified. And you might think, well, I've you know, known that my whole life, I've grown up in the church. How could that be controversial? But if you recall what we've been talking about, the sort of the history of the creeds, you recall that one of the, one of the earliest um, false teachings, which we call heresies, uh, was that Jesus wasn't fully human. 
And so one of the ways that that played out um, was, be, was, was denying that he was actually crucified. Right, that Jesus was a divine figure and God can't die. And so Jesus couldn't have been crucified. And so it either appeared like he was crucified or someone else took his place. And you might be interested to know that that, that is in some uh, Muslim communities, that's their view of Jesus as well. Uh, that Jesus, they, they believe in Jesus as a, one of their primary prophets. Uh, but they do not believe that he was crucified. Okay? They actually believe he's coming back, you might be interested to know, uh, at the end of time. And so, um, but they do not believe he was crucified. Um, but, but we do. Okay? We do uh, confess that he was crucified, that he was uh, fully human, fully divine, and that he was crucified. One of the things that's may be surprising about when you think about all the things that we confess and how central uh, we think about the cross being in the Christian tradition is how sparse the creed is about this moment, right? Um, for 2,000 years, uh, Christians have been trying to understand what's going on at the cross. And if you're like me, you think, well, that's easy. Because again, I learned this when I was really young. Um, Jesus died for my sins on the cross. And that is true. But it's, it's interesting that, at least in the Apostles' Creed, that isn't said. Okay, that isn't said. It doesn't mean it's not assumed. It's just not said. Um, it just says, was crucified. Now, the Nicene Creed of 381 uh, does say it was crucified for us. Okay. But again, very sparse, right? Um, the church for several thousand years has come up with a number of what we call theories of the atonement. Like, what, what is actually going on in the cross? It's not obvious. You might think it's obvious. I might think it's obvious, but it's only obvious to us because we have been told this story all our lives. Um, but it's not obvious. In fact, you could, it's not hyperbole to say that much of the New Testament is written with the deep desire to try to articulate what's happening in the cross and resurrection. Um, the, early, the early followers of Jesus, who were Jews, were scrambling to their scriptures what we call the Old Testament, trying to make sense of this. Um, and, it, and of course, it's only in light of the resurrection that they're doing that. We haven't got there yet. Gosh, that's another few phrases along. It'll be February before we get to that. Um, by the time it just right, maybe we get there by Easter. <laughs> but right, it's only, it's only in light of the resurrection that you have to explain, but what's the cross about? Because, I mean, if it weren't for the resurrection, Jesus was, would have just been another uh, executed uh, Messiah pretender. And there had been those before. Right? There had been a whole slew of Messiah pretenders. Right? And certainly, Rome had crucified plenty of people. 
But it's only in light of the resurrection that the early followers of Jesus, these early Jewish followers of Jesus, are like, what is going on? What is that about? And it wasn't obvious. Um, and we have, in fact, most of us landed on one of the ways uh, that the early church came to grips with. What does it mean that God takes flesh in the person of Jesus Christ and allows himself, Jesus allows himself to be crucified. What is that? What, what, what does that mean? Um, and so, interestingly enough, as you likely know, the, the New Testament talks about actually a number of things a number of things that are going on in the cross. And so I thought one thing we would do when we're talking about was crucified today was sort of remind ourselves, since it's the 500th anniversary of the Reformation, um, which was partly, among other things, about uh, recovering scripture for the church, um, that we, we should look at uh, several passages that articulate sort of the breadth of the work that's going on at the cross. And I don't think we're necessarily even being exhaustive here, but these are, these are the insights and the, the revelation that we have been given about what God is doing in and through the cross. So I thought we'd start with the one that we're familiar with, um, and we have to say one of the things we've always tried to talk about when we're reading scripture is um, we read scripture and we also try to allow scripture to read us. And um, one of the challenges is um, trying to be clear about the way that hearing scripture, we never hear scripture in a cultural vacuum, right? It wasn't written in a cultural vacuum, right? The early Jews were looking to their... <coughs> their culture, their scriptures to make sense of what was going on. Same thing with us. And so this first notion that Jesus suffered under Pontius Pilate and was crucified uh, in order to deal with our sin is a, a central affirmation of the Christian faith. Christians, I think, all across the board, this is one of the beauties of the creed, Christians all across the board agree that in some way God is dealing with our sin at the cross. What's interesting is trying to sort through like, well, how? Um, because it, it looks, at one level, it looks like a kind of crazy thing. Right? I mean, if you, if you hadn't heard this story your whole life, you might think, I'm not sure why... I'm not clear why that works, right? I mean, if I've done something wrong, and then I decided, then I decided to punish Tom for that, you think of that as an injustice, right? Um, and so, trying to get your head around what seems so obvious to us as somehow God's work, um, takes a little effort. And so, just look at one 
passage uh, for this particular notion. Because again, the creeds don't say how God deals with our sin at the cross. Right? We just have the sense from Scripture that God is dealing with our sin, our rebellion, the shame and guilt of our sin, that God is somehow addressing that in the cross. And so one of the passages that we look at is, is in 1 Peter chapter 2, if you want to open up to that. Um, this is in the context of, of Peter uh, encouraging those in his community who are suffering for the name of Christ, um, not just any suffering, but suffering for the name of Christ, encouraging them to, 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 uh, to be strong in that and to recognize that they are following the pattern of Jesus, right, who suffered um, himself. And so it's in that light that Peter writes, if you endure when you are beaten for doing wrong, what credit is that? But if you endure when you do right and suffer for it, you have God's approval. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you should follow in his steps. He committed no sin, and no deceit was found in his mouth. He was abused. He did not return abuse. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but he entrusted himself to the one who judges justly. Then he goes on to say, he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that free from sins, we might live for righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. And there... Peter is, is echoing uh, Isaiah, right? Uh, Isaiah 53, this, this uh, notion in the Hebrew scripture uh, of, the, of the suffering servant who, who bore the sins and by their wounds they were healed. And so we have this deep sense um, that somehow in, in, in the cross, God is dealing uh, with our sin. And it remains a bit of a mystery in the sense that we don't know exa exactly how that works. Um, the ancient Jews uh, thought much, uh, we'll talk about this a little later, uh, thought much about their own uh, ritual practice for dealing with sin, and the book of Hebrews particularly uh, leans on that in thinking of, of Jesus as being both high priest and the sacrifice. Um, but this is, this is without a doubt, um, in our day, uh, the prevalent view among Christians about what God is doing on the cross. And it shouldn't surprise us entirely, um, because, if we're honest, uh, we live in a culture that encourages me to think about... Um, I mean, one of the primary lenses I have from my culture, and I don't resist it very often, is um, what's in it for me, right? Um, so it's not surprising that when I, when I read scripture, what I'm most quickly taken by 
uh, in God's work on the cross is, well, what's in it for me? And the answer is plenty. I mean, I don't, I don't want to downplay this at all. I mean, this is a critical part of our faith, that in the cross, God is dealing with our sin. However, God is doing that on the cross. And again, Christians have wrestled with that and come up with various ways of trying to address, you know, what sense do we make that in the cross, God is somehow dealing with our sin. But we do confess that God is. But that's not the full biblical witness. And it seems like, um, as we're celebrating the uh, 500th anniversary of the Reformation, we should look at the full range of witness of Scripture about what's going on in the cross. The things that don't necessarily grab my attention right away in a culture like mine, but are every bit as important. So, a second passage of Scripture. If you go to Colossians chapter 2, uh, Paul uh, writes this. Um, this is... Um, this is the notion that in the cross, God defeats uh, the powers of evil and all the forces that oppress uh, the creation, that oppress humanity, and undermine our human flourishing. And so this is uh, particularly in verses uh, 13 to 15 of chapter 2 of Colossians. writes, when you were dead in trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive together with him when he forgave all your trespasses, erasing the record that stood against us with its legal demands. He set this aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and made a public example of them, triumphing over them. And here the notion of the rulers and authorities is not just earthly rulers and authorities, right? It's what in some translations are the principalities and the powers. It's, it's, the, it's the notion that there are powers that impinge uh, on our lives. And, and so there is in Scripture this notion that in the cross, God is defeating uh, the cosmic powers of evil and wickedness. And actually, this is, if you go back and read the early church, this is the primary way that they understood the cross, which is interesting, right? Um, they understood it as part of this cosmic drama where God is defeating, ultimately, the powers of sin and evil and all that undermines uh, human life. And, and that's part of what's going on in the cross. God is unmasking those powers. I mean, just think about last week, we were talking about the, the power of Rome, right? The power of Rome, uh, the greatest empire the world had ever seen to that point, uh, who actually prided themselves on justice, right? We told you that Pontius Pilate, three years later after this, um, episode with Jesus is, is executed. He's, he's actually told to kill himself, um, ordered to kill himself, because he had acted unjustly to the Samaritans. Right? The Romans prided themselves 
on justice. And yet, here in the cross, Jesus unmasks Rome for what it is. Okay? Unmasks, takes, takes, takes the, sh the charade, the, the, just shows Rome for what it is. It's like every other power in the world, which is not exactly what it thinks it is. Right? Far less than what it purports to be. And so, in the cross, God is defeating the powers and principalities that, and that's, that, was, that was good news, right? Uh, particularly if you lived in a world uh, in the first few centuries where people were pretty clear that they, they, their daily life felt like they were pawns of someone else, right? Their, their life, daily life felt like they were uh, purely instruments of somebody else's power. Um, there, there's plenty of people who feel that way today in the world, right? Uh, I, I may be, uh, in some ways, um, Im more immune than some from that um, because of my own social standing. But there are certainly people in the world who, who feel that, right? And even in our own culture. So that's the second thing. Third thing, Hebrews 2, 14 and 15, Another thing that is happening on the cross is the defeat of death, right? You hear this particularly in the great um, Eastern Orthodox liturgy for Easter or for Passion Week. Well, they have this wonderful line in the Eastern Orthodox Church that has actually come over into the West as well, that in in the cross and resurrection, God has trampled death by death. Right? I love that phrase. Trampled death by death. In other words, God defeats death by dying. Right? God takes the worst that the world can give and, and absorbs it. Right? takes it into the very life of God. It's a shocking affirmation. Again, if you go back to this, this early nervousness about God being, taking flesh, that, that somehow God absorbs, even takes into the very life of God. God takes into the very life of God death, and in so doing, defeats it. That's part of what's going on at the cross. You know, these things are bigger than me. Right? These things are bigger than me. They include me. Right? They don't leave me behind. But they're not just about me. They're about something much bigger than God's doing on the cross than, than simply dealing with my sin. Which, again, I don't, want to under, I don't want to underestimate the importance of that. I just want us to see the breadth that when we say was crucified, this is God is God is entering into our life all the way to death, and in so doing, defeating death. And so Hebrews chapter two puts it this way. 
Since, therefore, the children share flesh and blood, he himself, meaning Jesus, likewise shared the same things, so that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil. That also echoes the one which is before, right? The principalities and powers. And free those who all their lives were held in slavery by the fear of death. So, in trampling death by death, in the cross, God not only, God not only defeats death and the power of death, but the fear of death. We've talked about this a fair bit in here, particularly when we were have that series when we were talking about dying, right? How much of human life, whether consciously or unconsciously, is driven by the fear of death? More, more because part of it's unconsciously, more than we know, <laughs> right? More than we know. Um, and, and God is dealing with that because the fear of death is part the fear of death is part of what undermines God's goodness for us. Right? As long as I live under the shadow of death and fear it, I'm not living into the fullness of human flourishing that God's desires for me and for you. And it's in light of that. I mean, this is one of the ways, this is part of what you need to know. I mean, the fact that this is a powerful witness of the church is is the only way you can possibly make sense of the hundreds of thousands of Christian martyrs across the centuries. How, how were they able to do that? Because in cross and resurrection, God, they, they confess with their bodies, right? The word martyr comes from a Greek word that just means witness. Right? A martyr is a witness who confesses, who witnesses by their very life and death their deepest convictions. And so the Christian martyrs confess with their very lives through their deaths that God has trampled death by death. And they no longer have the fear of death. Right? This is good news. This is part of the gospel. <laughs> This is good news for daily life, right? Um, so God's doing a lot on the cross. Defeating death and the power of death. Four. In Ephesians 2, 13 and 16, Paul talks about the ways in which in the cross... Uh, God addresses and heals the deepest social division that they knew in their day. And by extension, perhaps makes possible the healing of social divisions in every era. In, in Paul's day, it was the division between Jew and Gentile. But Paul says, on the cross, 
God has made peace, right? God has made peace and brought together, and, and out of two, out of two peoples, Jew and Gentile, has created one new humanity. Here's what he says, I'll just read it. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off, that's the Gentiles, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he is our peace. In his flesh, he has made both groups, Jew and Gentile, into one and has broken down the dividing wall, that is, the hostility between us. He has abolished the law with its commandments and ordinances that he might create in himself one new humanity in place of the two, thus making peace, and might reconcile both groups to God in one body through the cross, thus putting to death that hostility through it. We don't often talk about that being the work of the cross. Right? I say, what's the work of the cross? Well, the God has created in the cross one new humanity. And out of two or three or four, how many of divisions there are, have brought peace. That's, that's part of the work of the cross. That's good news. That's good news for our day and every day. Um, when we find our daily life marked by division. Uh, in Christ, God has made us one. And then finally, fifth thing, and here we're just looking at a few things. We could, we could do more, but just being representative here. Colossians uh, chapter 1, 19 and 20. In the cross, God is not just reconciling Jew and Gentile, the writer of Colossians says, but in the cross, God is reconciling all things. God is reconciling all things in heaven and on earth, the writer says. The writer says in verse 19, for in him... In Christ Jesus, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him God was pleased to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, by making peace through the blood of his cross. So, in saying all that, yes, absolutely true, uh, that God is dealing with our sin somehow uh, in cross and resurrection. That's very good news. But there's also these other things that God is doing uh, in and through the cross. And so when we say that Jesus suffered under Pontius Pilate and was crucified, was crucified, We're saying a lot, right? We're confessing that God has entered into our human plight all the way to the end, right? Uh, that the God, Jesus didn't enter human life, and then when it got difficult, just slipped away. No, Jesus experienced human life 
all the way to the end of human life. So much so that, you know, he has that cry of dereliction from the cross, that cry of abandonment, which is stark, right? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Which one of us has not felt that at least once? Have, have not at least quietly said to ourselves, if not out loud, where are you in this? Why, why have you abandoned me? God knows our experience. God, God has taken up in and through Jesus Christ, taken up into God's very life. Death. Something that all of us will face. God is, God is no stranger to death. One last thing, briefly. In the last 40 or 50 years, one thing that has become maybe clear, clearer than it ever has been before, um, and I can only say a few words about this, we could teach a whole series of lessons on this, but we won't, at least not now. I just mention this because it, it's, it's another thing that's it's going on on the cross, but it's very hard to see. And the reason it's very hard to see is because um, what it also unmasks is something that's very hard to see. And that is what uh, sociologists, anthropologists, psychologists call scapegoating. Most of you are familiar with scapegoating, just like most of you are familiar with the train going through Sunday school class on Sunday morning. <laughs> And, and scapegoating happens at all kinds. Humans seem two things. We, we find it almost impossible not to scapegoat, and two, we're almost never aware that we do it. Okay? Uh, scapegoating is when uh, you blame somebody else in order to um, relieve yourself from dealing with your own sin. Okay? You can see it on the individual level as far back as say, hmm, how about the Garden of Eden, right? This woman that you gave me, right? She gave me the fruit, right? right? That's sort of classic scapegoating, right? How about uh, Joseph and his brothers, right? Joseph is part of an incredibly dysfunctional family. And this happens in our day, right? Incre incredibly dysfunctional families will often find a scapegoat, one child, which will be sacrificed in order to make peace in the family. The really horrifying thing about scapegoating is that it works. As far as keeping peace with the rest of the ones who aren't sacrificed. So, Brother Joseph is sacrificed, right? 
for the good of the family. Right. You see it at the trial of Jesus. We talked about last week. Uh, classic scapegoating. Um, it even is articulated earlier on in the Gospel of John. Right? When Caiaphas says, you know, don't you know that it's, it's expedient for one to suffer for the many? Right? Um, and so, and, and when scapegoating happens, weird alliances take place, which we also saw last week, right? Jews are making alliance with their hated Romans. Pilots making an alliance with Herod, who, who hate each other. But they all realize that if they can just sacrifice Jesus, Rome won't come in, things will be calm, and everyone can go back to their lives. And so, but what's unusual about this story? Okay, normally the scapegoating stories are sort of hidden. No one actually is honest about what they're doing. But what's powerful about the Jesus story is that Jesus unveils the scapegoating. Because normally in the scapegoating story, the emphasis is on the person who has to be rightly done away with in order that things can be back to normal, right? This is what Hitler did with the Jews, right? If we just get rid of the Jews, then all our economic problems and other things will be okay. This happens in every culture that we've ever found, okay? And, and it doesn't do any good to show somebody they're doing it. They'll, they'll deny that they're doing it, right? So, but all I wanted to say was, What's powerful about the Jesus story is that Jesus reveals, because this story is, is not actually focused on the guilt of the one who's being scapegoated, because he's innocent and everybody knows he is. But it's actually on the guilt of us. And our refusal to be honest. And so the last thing I would just say is, this, the, when we say was crucified, um, one of the things I'm going to be trying to think about the next time I stand and say the creed, um, along with all the other things we've already said, I'm also going to try to be a little more conscious than I am my own tendency to be part of the mob. My own tendency to be part of the mob who very conveniently, in whatever setting it's in, right, to scapegoat another person. Because part of the good news is Jesus is the scapegoat who puts the end to scapegoating. Just as he conquers death by death, he conquers scapegoating by revealing it for what it is. No, no longer should any society, any culture, any church, any family be given health and restoration by scapegoating another person. Let's pray. Gracious God, we stand humbled, knowing that in the face of Jesus on the cross, we come face to face with our own waywardness, our own sin. We also recognize that we come face to face with 
your cosmic work of dealing with all that needs to be set right. We give you thanks for the truth that we see in the face of Jesus Christ. Give us the courage and the fortitude and the grace to see ourselves for who we are and to thank you daily with our lives that you through Christ have given us new life. We pray this through Christ.